Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation to any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. The views and opinions contained herein are those of the individuals to whom they are attributed to. It may not necessarily represent views expressed or reflected in other Schroeder's communications, strategies, or funds. Hi everyone, I'm very excited about our guest this week. She's a financial journalist who, when working for Fortune magazine, was contacted by the short seller Jim Chanos, who told her to look into a company called Enron. Bethany McLean then went on to publish a column titled, Is Enron Overpriced in 2001?, which kickstarted the unraveling of the company. She went on to write a book titled, The Smartest Guys in the Room, The Amazing Rise and Scandalous Fall of Enron. She is also author of the titles, Shaky Ground, The Strange Saga of the U.S. Mortgage Giants, All the Devils Are Here, The Hidden History of the Financial Crisis, and Saudi America, The Truth About Fracking and How It's Changing the World. Bethany has also been working at Vanity Fair as a contributor for over a decade now and has pretty much covered all of your famous corporate frauds the last 20 years. Her background is as a mathematician and she started her career in Goldman Sachs as part of their M&A department. She and Juan built up this conversation in reference to our previous interview with Carson Block and exploring the nature of the people who are committing these frauds, the difference between the visionary and the fraudster, what is needed on the other side of the ledger to uncover these frauds and withstand the pressure coming from believers, and finally, the role of short sellers in today's markets. Please enjoy. Bethany McLean, welcome to The Value Perspective. It's a pleasure to have you here. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on. Where do we find you today? So I am in an area of the country called Lakeside, Michigan, which is an unincorporated uh, township right across the border from Indiana on the shores of Lake Michigan, which is pretty remarkable for any of your listeners who have not visited the Great Lakes. They're they're incredible bodies of water, more interesting than oceans in some ways, dare I say. (laughs) I used to think that you were based in New York, but you're based in Chicago, right? So I go back and forth between New York and Chicago, but I'm mostly in Chicago. For those of our listeners that do not know who you are, can you please give us a brief summary of who is Bethany McLean? That's an interesting question. Um, Let's see, I've been a journalist for, I guess, 25 years, and I have written a couple of books. Uh, My first book was a book about Enron called The Smartest Guys in the Room, The Amazing Rise and Scandalous Fall of of Enron, which I co-authored with uh, another journalist at Fortune, which is where I worked at that time. And I sometimes think I will always be Enron girl, despite the fact that I have tried to do other things in order to move on from that. My second book was a book about the financial crisis called All the Devils Are Here, which I co-authored with a guy named Jonah Sarah, who is also a former colleague of mine at, at Fortune. And then I've written a couple of smaller books about 
quite wonky areas of interest. One was about fracking and the other was about the US housing giants, Fannie and Freddie. And I've worked as a contributing editor at Vanity Fair for the last, oh goodness, 12 years. 13 years, 14 years, oh my, a long time. So it's funny that you say that you will always be rem uh, remembered or identified as the Enron girl. I guess that's like a little bit like the Beatles when they tried to move on people kept coming back to them to their Beatles time as part of the band. And well, one of the books that you, the two last books that you mentioned there, Saudi America, which is about the fracking and the history of fracking in the US and Shaky Ground, which is all about the, I guess, financial crisis in the US, right? It's about the financial crisis, but it's actually narrower than that. It's specifically about these two companies, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, that dominate the mortgage industry in the US. Lord Mervyn King, the former governor of the Bank of England, once joked to me that we in the US do things opposite of you in Europe. In Europe, you have socialized healthcare and a free market in mortgages. And in the US, we have a supposedly free market in healthcare, but we socialize our mortgage business. So anyway, that's that, that's that's sort of the clearest description of Fannie and Freddie that I can come up with. You will correct me if I'm wrong, but you are always you were also the producer of a Netflix documentary on Valiant. Is that correct? I, yes. Well, I was I, I helped with the, the documentary, so producer is probably maybe I got producing credit. I'm not sure, but yes, I had written a large story on Valiant for Vanity Fair, and then I was part of the Netflix documentary that was called Dirty Money. That actually the creative genius behind that is a guy named Alex Gibney, who had also made the movie about Enron called The Smartest Guys in the Room. So I've okay. known Alex for a really long time. And you have also run a podcast show, is that correct? Yeah, so I did a podcast of my own for a while called Making a Killing, which uh, the idea was to interview not famous people in business, but rather people who had written really interesting stories about something going on in, in the business world, because I sometimes you can feel like you can learn something more from the close observer than from the person at the center of the story, at least it's a different perspective. And so I would interview people that I thought had done really interesting work on some facet of the business world. And I'm debating restarting that. And at the current time, I co-host a podcast called Capital Isn't, which is basically a look at what's working in capitalism and what isn't. And I co-host it with a professor at the University of Chicago named Luigi Zangales. I think that you were in the process of finishing a new book. And can we know what the book is about or is that still a secret? Oh, no, it's not a secret. So, yes, I have been working on a book about the economic consequences of the pandemic, again, with Joe Nocera, my longtime collaborator. And the idea is really to look at the things that were fraying before, the things in our economy that were fraying even before the pandemic hit, that were problematic even before the pandemic hit, and then show how COVID exacerbated them or pushed them to the breaking point. And so it's, I, I guess, broadly writ, it's the topic that I'm most interested in now, which is how capitalism is working and how it isn't working. And the pandemic, I think, shone a spotlight on some of the things in capitalism that are not working well. Like energy. Like, like energy, but also like healthcare in the United States, for sure. Uh, the way in which our supply chains have become uh, incredibly fragile not not resilient it really wasn't just ppe it started ppe was the first time we said wow this just-in-time supply chain model where everything is stretched to the breaking point whoa it breaks but i think we realized that it really isn't just ppe it's 
it's much broader than that. Uh, semiconductors are getting a lot of the focus now, uh, but healthcare for sure, and all the way through to Federal Reserve and really central bank policy around the world in, in keeping interest rates very low and engaging in quantitative easing. And if that has left our economies more, more fragile than they might than they might otherwise be. And I think the answer to that is yes. I think that we have left behind on your very brief summary of your very impressive career, the fact that you are a mathematician, that was your major, right? Yes, in undergrad, I was a math and an English major. So that was a lot of years ago. And so I no longer think of myself as much of a mathematician, but it, it, it in, a, in a very practical sense, it was actually funny my, my mother was here recently and she's going through the process of throwing things out of her house and she brought some papers of mine from college and one of them were the math proofs I used to do and just pages pages of tiny little handwriting just just detailed proofs and I looked at it and I recognized the handwriting and thought that's mine but the math behind it I mean gone <laughs> effectively but but at the same time I said to a friend of mine recently that well I'm no longer a math major I've, I've become a, a writer and he, he was like oh no you still write like a math major <laughs> so I, I take I take that as a compliment in, in the sense that I think the backbone of logic formed by having been a math major does inform my writing to just to, to some extent so I guess maybe once a mathematician always a mathematician and you started your career doing MA for Goldman Sachs Yes, that's a little more grandiose than I would describe it. I started my career as an analyst in the investment banking division at Goldman, which doing M&A is probably, I was doing the, the grunt work involved in M&A. <laughs> and uh, so how did you transition to becoming a journalist and start writing for Fortunes Magazine? So it was a lot of years ago and the lessons from this are no longer are no longer incredibly um, um, applicable. And what I mean by that is that back in those days in the mid nineties, all the big magazines like Fortune had, they were very profitable. Fortune was part of Time Inc, which had offices in Rockefeller Center. And, you know, it was a big profitable magazine company, the biggest in the world. And they all had fact-checking departments. So it was a way for someone like me who had no experience in journalism to get in the door. I was hired to check facts on other people's stories. And they said, oh, well, we don't know if you can write and you probably Probably can, but you can read this financial story and see if it's accurate or not because you know enough about this world of business having worked on, on Wall Street for three years. So that was my way in the door. And because no one has, no one in publishing has money anymore, those big institutions don't exist apart from the journal, apart from newspapers, and they don't hire fact checkers. It's not applicable as a career path anymore, but that was that was how I did it. So this last question is centered to the to many of the questions that I will be uh, asking you during our session. But before we do that, I think it's important to remind our listeners, in case that they don't know it, that the reason why you are called uh, or you are sometimes referred to as the Enron Girl is because it was your piece on Fortune's Magazine back in 2001, the starting point of unraveling Enron as a fraud. Is that correct? 
Um, I think that's correct in the big picture sense. It was the, the one of the first skeptical stories about Enron to run, and it was the first in a, in a major publication that said something that doesn't make sense here. I've always thought, though, that that story more picked up on the underlying skepticism about Enron that was brewing in the market rather than started anything. So I suppose it started something in the sense that once somebody's publicly asking questions, it gives people a license to ask questions, to ask questions publicly. So I suppose in some ways it did, but I've never thought that I, I never thought that I uncovered anything so much as I picked up on something that people were already thinking. I don't know if that makes sense as a distinction. Yeah, I think that it's easy to forget for those that lived it and difficult to understand for those that didn't lived it, how big Enron was back then. And I guess the question would be, um, this was a company that had many eyes on them from sell-side analysts and all sorts of investors, but no one really picked up on on what you disclosed in your in your article. Although one of the a very big name short seller did help you to yeah. kind of that direction, right? Yes. So I, journalists are really only as good as our sources. I suppose that's not entirely true, but we you, you rely on, and I was a generalist journalist at the time, meaning I wrote about lots of different things. So there's no reason I would have looked at Enron if somebody hadn't said, a uh, well-known short seller named Jim Chanos hadn't said, why don't, why don't you take a closer look at Enron? We don't understand this. He was not on the record. So that meant that I could take the tip and say, oh, this is interesting. But then I had to go and do and do all the work myself. I actually think that Enron remains, Enron still looms large in, in many ways in a way that I would never have understood or anticipated at the time. But I think for lots of reasons, I think one of them is that it was the beginning of a breaking point in the sense that up until Enron, which coincided with the collapse of the first dot-com boom, there was this idea that individual investors were now on the same playing field as major investors. And we were responsible in the U.S. for managing our own retirement through our 401ks and choosing our own stocks. And the market was a place where stocks went up and everybody got rich and, and companies didn't lie. And Enron was the first time that everybody said, wow, maybe maybe none of that's true. This huge company that is on the Fortune 500 list that is so celebrated, everything about that can be wrong. And so I think it was the beginning of a crack in confidence in a sense that was exacerbated by the financial crisis of 2008 that I don't, I'm not sure we've ever really recovered from. So I've come to see Enron as a, as a, as a breaking point of sorts, or as a real, as a real turning point. Um, I think the other reason, another reason that Enron remains so broadly interesting is that, as you just alluded to, it really is a tale of human nature. I mean, I was a math major, yes. I worked at, at Goldman for a mere three years. I'm not a forensic accountant. Why could I see something when everybody else, not everybody else, but, but the majority of people, all the Southside analysts, portfolio managers were saying, this is the greatest company since sliced bread. This stock is going to double in the, in, in the next year. Why couldn't they see what I saw? And I think part of that is a story of Wall Street right? Everybody wants things to go up because that's how most people make money. And so the bias is very strong in that direction. Lots of people get paid when things go up. Very few people get paid when things go down. And I think it's also a story of the power, the cult of personality and how strong that can be in, in business. 
people in the business world tend to think of themselves as analytical and cold-blooded and able to see facts. That's just so not true. It's just so dictated by emotion. And in this case, people really believed in Jeff Skilling, the former CEO of Enron. He's a very intellectually charismatic figure um, and one who I think intimidated a lot of people. And so people went along with what they didn't, what they didn't understand. And that lesson, how the emperor's new clothes, the old fable of the emperor's new clothes can actually be, uh, can actually apply to the modern business world is one that I think is worth not forgetting. And also, I think that people don't realize or forget that it was not only the investment community or sell-side research analysts, but the consultants, the McKinsey's of the world were framing Enron as a company to copy. And I think that I've heard you mention in the past that even Harvard Business Review had a case study on them. That's correct. <laughs> yes. So, so McKinsey, yes, their consultants were running around the world preaching to other companies how they could make themselves more like the Enron executives. I think they coined a word to describe the Enron executives, petropreneurs. And so I've often joked that maybe it's maybe it's a red flag when consultants start coining words. You should just you should run away. But um, yes, Harvard, Harvard Business School wrote a number of glowing case studies about Enron. Jeff Skilling had gone to Harvard Business School. And I have been told that those those case studies are no longer accepted on the HBS database. They've been wiped clean. And so you have to know where to find them in order to, to find them. And to me, that's always been a huge knock on Harvard Business School, because if they were really intellectually honest, they would do a wraparound case study of all their positive case studies and say, here's why we got it wrong. Here's why we believe. And, and that would be psychologically interesting, right? But no, they, yes. just, pretend, they just pretend it didn't happen. <laughs> That's really interesting. There's something that you've mentioned in the past about what the media world looked like and its shape 20 years ago and what Fortune Magazine was a part of. And we had recently the pleasure of having Carson Block on the podcast, and he was making the point that in the past, most corporate frauds were uncovered by journalists doing lots of field work. But that specific business model, he claimed, has declined over the last 20 years as traditional media companies have found budget constraints and less appetite to do this kind of work, giving consumers' attention span shortening. Do you, do you think that's correct? I do think that's correct. And it would be interesting. This is um, my view of this is also more observational than it is necessarily quantitative. So it'd be interesting to look at it and see if this is this is really true. But so in the old days, when I worked at Fortune, I was paid a salary by Fortune magazine, and I could take three months to work on a story that may or may not come to fruition. Now, if you did 10 of those back to back, your career probably wouldn't be in very good shape, but you, but you could do that and you could take the chance on something not working out in order to dig into a story that, 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 that was important. If I had pursued the Enron story and my, my editors had ended up saying, yeah, there's nothing here, we can't publish this. It would not have been the end of my career. I still would have collected my salary. I still would have been able to pay my rent in New York. I still would have been able to, to feed myself, all that, all that sort of stuff. And so the world, that, that magazine world is, is pretty much gone. A lot of magazines operate on a freelance basis where you get paid when you publish a story and that's it. And so the incentive then is to do pieces that you know are going to get published, not to take a chance on investigating something. The big magazine companies like the Journal and the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Washington Post, they still do a lot of investigative pieces. And so that's the place where I might have a, have a caveat about this. But newspaper journalism 
journalism has always been a little bit different than, than magazine journalists because newspaper journalists have beats. And on the plus side, that means they know their industries very, very well. But on the negative side, it may mean that they can't see the fact coming at them from the outside, right? If you're immersed in something and this is the world you're living, then it's very hard to change your perspective and say, oh, this company that everybody I talk to is celebrating, it might actually be a fraud. And so the glory of the old magazine model was that you came at things fresh and you were able to say, well, just because everybody sees it this way doesn't mean that, 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 I, that I see it this way. So I do think something has been lost. On the, flip, on the flip side, you know, back in that old world, the only way you were going to get something published was if you were a journalist. You had to have access to a major media company. You had to be able to publish in their pages. Today, you can be anybody and you can publish. You can publish on Twitter. You can publish on Seeking Alpha. You can, there's so many mechanisms. You can publish on Substack. There's so many mechanisms by which, by which you can get your own point of view out. And so in some ways, the deprofessionalization of writing is not a bad thing, although I would argue as a follow-on, it has come with, with, with some bad things in the sense that in the old world, you had to be very highly accountable for what you wrote. And if there were factual inaccuracies, you were going to have to correct them. And there were certain processes you had to follow, like calling someone before you published something that was critical of them and making sure you gave them a chance to, to talk. And I think there's been a rise of bullying in this new world because people are able to publish things and say things about people with having to, without having to make that very difficult step of picking up the phone and calling them and saying, here's what I'm going to say about you. Got anything to say for yourself? <laughs> this is a podcast that has aimed to explore decision-making or how people make decisions under uncertainty and how can you improve. And part of that journey is to explore and understand human psychology and biases and character in general. And so how many times in your experience, people find themselves in this sort of situation where they believe that they aren't actually doing anything wrong? There must be the actual fraud where the person must be aware that he is out there lying. For example, I guess Bernie Madoff, he must have known at some point that he was committing fraud. But in many other cases, there must be a belief that at some point their grand idea will prove right and market conditions will prove them right either. For example, Enron with their broadband or energy services or Valiant with their next purchase or price increase. So I think that's almost always the case that people don't understand or don't allow themselves to admit that they're doing something wrong. The human powers of self-delusion and rationalization are extraordinarily strong. That's how most of us get through this thing called life with some degree of that. And I think that explains almost every story of business gone wrong. It's rarely a case of someone sitting in a dark room uh, coming up with a bad thing they're about to do. As a journalist, you you only wish, right? You could find that moment where the heads of all the big financial firms sat in a dark, smoky room off Wall Street, you know, preferably with cigars, figuring out how to take down the global financial system. No, that's 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 not how it worked. Even in the case of Enron. Uh, uh, my biggest surprise, because I was such a math major at that point, and I thought if people are doing bad things, then it must be bad people deliberately setting out to do those bad things. And when I started talking to former Enron employees, much to my shock, very few of them had any idea that something was going badly wrong. And many of them look back and say, how did I not see it? How did I not add up the pieces? But Enron seemed to them like an immensely profitable corporation. So even if in their division, it looked like something was badly wrong and that they were manipulating the each transaction in order to produce reported earnings while cash was going out the door, they'd say, well, look at all of this. The cash has to be coming from somewhere. And they didn't 
put all the pieces together and say, wow, this is what we're doing here. Maybe we're doing this across the entire corporation. And I think for leaders at the top of a company, there's a huge incentive to rationalize and to say, well, maybe I'm bridging this gap in quarterly earnings here by, by coming up with this transaction that's gonna plug the hole so that I can meet Wall Street's estimates. But that's only until this new business um, kicks in and then everything's gonna be great and this transgression won't come to light. And by the way, I'm doing the right thing for my investors and for my employees by bridging the gap because if I don't do this, the stock is gonna plunge and that's gonna be bad for everybody. So there's, there's a very human process of rationalization. And I've often thought, that even more broadly, this line between the visionary and the fraudster is actually much narrower than most people think. You want to believe that they sit on opposite ends of the spectrum, but I think they actually sit where the two ends of a circle meet and that the line dividing them is much, much finer than, than, than you might think. I mean, Enron's broadband business, as you referenced, was Netflix ahead of its time. And so if the shenanigans of Enron's chief financial officer and all the other ways in which Enron was manipulating its earnings hadn't come to light, and if Enron's uh, demise, if the questions about Enron hadn't co coincided broadly with the end of the first dot-com bubble, when all of a sudden there was skepticism in the air, and if Enron had been able to continue to raise money and the capital markets hadn't panicked, would Enron have been able to become Netflix? Possibly. And then would anybody care about what Enron did in order to bridge the gap in these in-between years? No, it would be sort of an interesting academic exercise that, oh, they engaged in all these shenanigans to look more profitable than they were, but no one would really care. I mean, if Elizabeth Holmes' um, machine, the Edison, had eventually worked and it had revolutionized this field, would anybody care looking back that there was a period where she was lying and it wasn't really working? No. Um, the same thing with arguably Elon Musk. If his non-self-driving cars do actually drive themselves anytime soon, will anybody care that he once said they were self-driving when they really weren't? Probably not. Would it be fair to say that the difference between someone that goes down the path of fraud in history or a visionary is just a matter of luck? I'm not sure. I think that's a great question and I wrestle with this. I think in some ways there is some luck involved because it is the ability to continue to raise money through that period where the vision might have some elements of fraud, where it's not quite what you're selling. And I think there is there is some luck. There's some timing in that, some salesmanship, some ability to find the right investor who's going to keep backing you through, through that period. And I think, I think some of that is the right idea that's going to capture the imagination of investors around the world such that you can keep raising money through that period. There's also a little bit of luck in what prosecutors choose to look back at. So there are some lies that no one will ever investigate, and there are other lies that will get investigated. And I think some of that is a matter of luck in the mood of the public and how hungry people are for, for, for scalps. Um, but then but then I wonder, is, is there something else? And is there an ability to hear the word no that the people who do get their vision to the other side of the line have, have learned? Is there an ability to wrestle with the, the uncomfortable, the fact that this might not work? An ability to say, oh, this is the line I won't cross that those people have. And I think that might be the case that people who have experienced failure are more able to hold 
the, these two competing notions in their head. And I often think of that great quote from Fitzgerald that is um, the mark of true genius is the ability to hold two competing notions in your mind and not go crazy. It's, it's close to that, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. But I often think that, that the really great entrepreneur can hold both two book notions in their, in their mind, that this is the greatest idea ever and this is gonna change the world and oh, this might fail. And to be able to be very clear-headed about the signs of failure at the same, while not losing the charge forward on the brilliant idea. And I think that's a mark of an incredible mind to be able to do that. You have covered some of the major frauds in corporate history over the past 20 years. From your own experience, what are the sort of personality traits you find in many of these people behind these major corporate events? Is it a matter of being incredibly smart? very self-confident, good storytellers, builders of calls. What is it that they have in common? It's all those things. And that's, again, that's interesting, right? Because some of those traits you would also use to describe very successful entrepreneurs and visionaries. But yes, they're often very, very good storytellers. They're people who become cult leaders in a sense that investors uh, just believe in them and begin to think, well, I put my trust in this person regardless of what anybody else says. And that actually can sometimes be the right decision to put your trust in, in, in a person, but it can also be the hallmark of disaster to of disaster to come. They're often very charismatic. Um, there's often the company itself has taken on a kind of status where if you say something negative about that company, you're going to get attacked and you're going to draw a lot of criticism because the company itself has become this iconic thing that cannot be criticized. So those are all things they have in common. Think about Mike Pearson and Jeff Skelling. Oh, and they were both McKinsey consultants too. That might be another hallmark. I'm only half joking. <laughs> Because I guess on the other side of the coin, you will find the Warren Buffetts, the Steve Jobs, the Bill Gates, all of them have at some point in time created their own cult. And to a certain extent, people believe in them blindly. I, I don't, not sure a lot of people know how Berkshire, actually a lot of people have pointed out that there are many aspects of Berkshire accounting, which might not be as transparent as they sometimes claim it to be. Right. So that's, and, and for sure, you can look back on many of the stories around Microsoft in the early days. I'm pretty sure, did the term vaporware originally come from a Microsoft product? I'm not sure that's true, but there were certainly many Microsoft product launches that were vaporware in the sense that the product didn't quite do what the company was claiming that it did. And so what's the line between that and Elizabeth Holmes Edison machine? Well, there is a line, but it's finer than you might think. And yes, Steve Jobs is a perfect example, right? Incredibly charismatic man who is very difficult to work for and who has created in some ways this idea in Silicon Valley that be an asshole just like he was. And that must mean that you're going to be successful just like he was. And maybe that's an interesting lesson is to be very, very careful about correlation versus causation. And I think we all get really sloppy about that. And so the idea in Silicon Valley, and it really did for a while became if you were an asshole, like Steve Jobs, then you were going to be successful. That must mean, that must be the hallmark of somebody who is going to be successful. Well, may, maybe not. Maybe it was correlated in the case of Jobs, or maybe it wasn't even correlated. Maybe it was just random. And the idea that one thing causes the other, if, if you step back and think about it, well, it's, it's obviously not true. So I, I, I think that maybe separating out these, these our, our, our human desire to simplify and to find a personality trait that must mean we should believe in this person and to really think about, well, is that true? Correlation versus causation, or maybe just the randomness of life. Because you will correct me if 
wrong, but Jeb Skilling was a very difficult person to work for. And he was actually caught once on an analyst call calling someone something that we cannot really repeat on this podcast. Can't we come on? <laughs> and well, even Elon Musk called on an analyst on a call as well because he didn't like the question, which was something about how are you making money? Yes. Yes. And so that's true. Jeff Skilling was, he was infamous for dividing the world into the people who got it and the people who didn't get it. And everybody wanted to be on his list of the people who got it because you felt like one of the uncool kids if you were on the list of people who didn't get it. And the way to land yourself on the list of people who didn't get it was to ask a question that Skilling didn't like and had just dismiss you by saying, you don't get it. And it's really amazing how powerful that is in life, particularly as we get older, because you tend to think that you get older, you get more confident. Of course, you're going to call things out and say, no, I don't understand that. And in fact, I think, again, just like the fable of the emperor's new clothes, life often works in exactly the opposite way. As you get older, you have more to lose. And so you are more afraid to say, I don't understand it, particularly when everybody around you uh, appears to be understanding it. The temptation is just to say, well, maybe I wasn't paying close enough attention. I'm, I'm sure this must be right, or everybody else around me wouldn't be, wouldn't, wouldn't be agreeing with this. And so I often think one really important lesson in life and something I think about a lot is how do you make sure you're being intellectually honest with yourself? And for me, it's always when I sit down to write. I suppose it's a math major in me, but when I sit down to write, I figure out that I didn't really understand the thing that I pretended to understand because I do it too. If someone's explaining something to me, I'll often nod my head. And I really think in that moment that I've gotten it. And then I sit down to write and to try to explain it to somebody else. And I realize I didn't, I didn't understand. And that forces, that's, that's my sort of enforcement mechanism for intellectual honesty, if you will. And I think everybody has to find that for, for themselves. Um, and it may not mean, it doesn't mean you have to be public about it. It doesn't mean you have to be the person in the room who says, I don't get it, but you have to know yourself that you didn't really understand what just happened. And then you can go back and do more work and try to understand it. And that doesn't mean there's something wrong with it, by the way, that you didn't understand it. It may just mean that you weren't paying attention. You weren't often, in my case, you weren't smart enough to understand it. And you need somebody to hold your hand and walk you through it a little, a little more carefully. And all of that is good. But where you get into trouble is when you, when you pretend that you understood it and you didn't. And when you pretend to yourself, especially, that you understood it and you didn't. Have you ever had a chance of talking to Skilling or Fasto after the events unravel and they came out of jail? So Andy and I have run into each other a couple of times um, because he's now out on the speaking trail giving talks about his experiences at, at Enron. So, so yes. Okay. I want to flip the question a little bit. And this is something that we ask. Carson Block and is very much of our interest, which is what's needed from a behavioral point of view and personality and character to be on the other side of the trade. You have all of these people believing in the company, all of these people believing on the narrative, all of these people believing on the story. You have regulators that sometimes side with management. You have long-only investors. You have hedge funds. Sometimes, I think that Chainos once said that on almost every short, big, for famous short sellers trade, there's a famous long only investor. And the person that is uncovering whatever is wrong or raising questions about the business model gets hammered and attacked incessantly. I think that 
that's a little bit uh, what short sellers have had to live over a long period of time, if not ever, that's the nature of their business, but journalists as well. So what does it need to be one of those people? So Jim Chanos once said to me, and it was years and years ago, he said that he had no problem finding really smart people to come and work for him who could do all sorts of interesting analysis. But what was hard was to find the person who could stand against the tide, especially for a really long period of time. And it was easy, not easy enough, but it was okay to say, all these people think this, and I think it's this once, but continue to believe that in the face of being told you're wrong by all the people you just you just mentioned was really, really difficult. And I think more broadly, that's that's it. We as humans, and it's probably a pro-social trait, we, we, we wanna belong, right? We wanna fit in with other people. And standing against the tide when everybody thinks something and saying, no, 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 I don't believe that. I don't think that's right. It's, it's very, very difficult. And it's more difficult for some people than it is for others. And so I guess it comes back to knowing yourself. And if it's easy for you, that's great. But then that may, may mean, as in, as in my case, that you have a little bit too much of a tendency to be a contrarian. And in the end, being a reflexive contrarian is no better than being a reflexive believer, right? If you don't believe something just because everybody else does, well, that's not really any more thoughtful than believing it just because everybody else does, right? So, so I have a little bit of that in me and I have to be, I have to be wary of that. But if you don't and your overwhelming desire is to belong and to fit in, then you have to be aware of that in yourself and, and ask yourself when you're going along with something or when you agree with something that everybody else thinks, why, why is this? And if you don't agree with it, then to sort of know that this is going to be hard for you because, because you, because you, it's more comfortable to think like everybody else does. And so I think it just, it comes down to that old basic tenet of self-knowledge. When you wrote your first piece on Enron and you had like a series of pieces, it was not only one, right? No, it was it was one major piece. And then I did a few smaller ones before they went bankrupt. But that that was one of the downsides of the old model of magazine journalism and, and still true to some extent today, which is that it is kind of a hit me with your best shot uh, um, um, thing. You don't have the opportunity to publish a piece on Enron and then in the next issue in the magazine, publish another piece on Enron. Right. You get to publish one piece on Enron and then that's that. You've said what you what you have to say. And so I, I, I do think and this is a different question than what you asked, but one of the strengths of journalism today is that it can be more iterative. You know, you can publish and then people can come to you and say, but what about this? And you, you can publish again online, um, et cetera. Anyway, that wasn't what you asked. <laughs> well, I was getting, I wanted to ask you if you had a lot of pressure from Enron itself or sales analysts or long on investors, or was it the fact, as you were explaining at the beginning, that you came out with the story and it just made public the uneasiness that many people were feeling about the company? So there was a lot of pressure. Um, I had to call Enron, of course, before the before the story ran. I did a lot of homework and I called them. And I still remember this call because I sort of expected them to say, yeah, 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 whatever, go away, pesky little journalist. Um, um, you know, this is, this is, here are the answers to your questions. This is absurd. Um, and they sort of said that, but in a very aggressive way. So they had Jeff Skilling get on the phone with me and he yelled at me. And he said, anybody who raises these questions is unethical because you haven't done enough homework to understand our business. And if you had done your homework, you would understand how stupid your questions are. And it's unethical of you to publish a story like this when you don't understand anything about us. And then he had a couple of 
of um, Enron executives, including Andy Fasta, fly up to Fortune's offices in New York and, and sit down with, with me and my editors. And Ken Lay, who was at the time the chairman of Enron, called the editor of Fortune and said, you know, don't you dare publish this story. You've got a ignorant young journalist who is taking a story from a short seller and you know we can't we can't go forward you can't do this so there was a fair amount of pressure and that was for sure intimidating I'm always by nature also inclined to think that I might be wrong and so that kind of pressure to some people would make them say well I must be right look at all this pressure that's trying to silence me and in my case I suppose there was a little of that but it was more uh uh-oh I, I might be wrong. <laughs> um, but one of the great glories of the old model of, of magazine journalism was that my editors stood with me. So I've always wondered if they had not, if they had said, oh, Bethany, you know, we can't go forward with this, uh, how hard I would have fought for my story. And I, I think I would have fought, but I, but the reality is I didn't have to do that because they all backed me up. So. Why is it that you find sometimes regulators so skeptical of many of the claims that go against many of these companies. Is it that we are just, it's easy to remember the cases that were fraud for real, but maybe there are many cases in history where people were pointing fingers at the company where there was no major fraud, or maybe it was not uncovered, or maybe it just got bailed out by markets or some of the other reasons that we've talked about in the podcast. Yeah, so I think it's both. I think maybe threefolds. So first is, as you said, there are a lot of cases where people bring complaints to regulators and it turns out that the complaints aren't totally real. And what they really want is for the regulator to take action so that they can make money off their position. And that's real, right? So regulators have an inherent and valid skepticism of people who are trying to get them to take an action that will benefit their, their, benefit their own pocket. I would say that that's true, but not entirely everybody in the market is self-interested, right? We all want our position to benefit. So the idea that someone who wants a stock to go down is somehow worse than somebody who wants a stock to go up, well, that's not very honest. That's not true. So that's one portion of it, I think. I think another component of it, though, uh, the broader human nature aspect of it is that people just don't, well, but let me pause on the second issue first, which is that people, often regulators, there's implicit bias. You all come, I think that was true in the run-up to the financial crisis. It's not explicit bias. It's not like someone was shoving a bag of cash at Ben Bernanke under the table, telling him to say that the subprime mortgage crisis was going to be contained and wasn't going to be a big deal. It's that when people all come from inside the same world, they tend to think the same way. And so you just don't see it because, because you, you, you think like the people you're regulating. And so because you think like them, and these are the people you talk to, you don't mean to get it wrong, but you do. But I think the biggest thing is this broader sort of lack of imagination. And that's because when you look at some of these corporate disasters before they happen, if someone were to told, to have told you that this was going to happen, you would say, no way, this, this could never happen. This just couldn't happen. Enron, couldn't, one of the biggest companies in the U.S., couldn't possibly be a fraud. The financial crisis, major Wall Street institutions going bankrupt or almost going bankrupt. No, 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 that can't happen. Um, even Elizabeth Holmes, that her whole Edison machine could be a fraud that, and she could be so celebrated and on the cover of every magazine. No, 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 that can't possibly happen. The idea that a global pandemic is going to come along and two and a half years later, we're still going to be fighting our way through it. No, 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 that can't happen. That's, that's out of some kind of science fiction book. And so I think people often have a lack of imagination in a way that is very dangerous because they think that really big bad thing can't 
can't be on the list of possibilities. And the reality is it is. Does that same rationale applies to long-only investors and analysts on the sell side? I think it does. I think the idea that this worst case outcome, that this big bad thing could actually happen. It's not the way our human brains work. And you would say it's an outside probability. It's a very tail end, but except when you look back over the last couple of decades, it really isn't. This stuff happens over and over again. And that crazy worst case outcome is actually not only it's possible, it may not be probable, but it for sure is possible. Are East activist short selling going extinct? in the sense that you only have, I mean, you can read them from wrong, but it, it seems like the fact that markets have been going up for the last 10 years and short selling is very difficult and they face so much pressure. Nowadays, you have Chainus and maybe Carson Block who are quite famous. And I know that there are there might be a lot of smaller shops out there, but you don't hear that much about them as maybe before. Is that a, is that a fair Account? I, think, I, I think it is, but I think it's sort of just like that famous Business Week cover in 1980 that predicted the death of equities, right? I think right now we're predicting the death of short sellers, and it certainly has been a terribly rough time to be a short seller, but I think we're heading into a very different market going, going forward, and so this next decade could be the golden age of short sellers, right? And we're all predicting their extinction. But more than short sellers themselves... Um, I was kind of thinking about the the activist one, the one that is kind of pointing fingers to a company that it's misbehaving or manipulating reality or the economics of the business, just because they tend to be attacked by so many people, I guess. It must be emotionally and psychologically very, very difficult. Well, I think it depends on who you are. It goes back to my comments about our discussion about human nature. There's some people who thrive on that. I mean, there really are. And so I hope not because... I actually think one of the, when I think back on Enron, one of the great uh, misconceptions about that period was that everybody had access to the same information. And they really didn't, because when you looked at the public narrative about Enron, it was this glowing success where the stock was going to triple in the next year. But then there was a private narrative about Enron in the credit markets where they were trying desperately to raise money among, among short sellers that was very, very skeptical. And yet that narrative didn't ever make it into the public. And so individual investors got screwed. They had no chance to protect themselves because it wasn't as if they had this view and this view, and they were able to weigh for themselves these two competing views and say, well, this is what I choose to believe. The world is very different today. In the case of Tesla, for instance, if you choose to believe in Tesla, it's not because there's not lots of information to the contrary, right? But you can look at that and make your own decision. Um, and, and I think that's that's much healthier. And that in some ways has been, even over the course of the last really difficult 10 years, 20 years of huge difficulty for short sellers, that's because there are so many people who are public about their, their negative views and willing to take that, that heat. And I think that's something for which we should all be grateful. Why would you not want to hear a contrary opinion? Even if you're the biggest believer in Tesla that there possibly ever was, why would you not want to know that this is the viewpoint of a really smart person who's taking the opposite bet? Dismiss it if you want, but at least you know it's there. Whereas in the old days, we didn't, we didn't even know it was there. Do you think that the world has changed much over the course of the last 20 years? And the reason I'm asking the question is because we had Dominique Miel on the podcast. She used to be at Canyon, was a partner at Canyon, was one of the uh, first top 10 employees, very successful women in finance. And on her book, Damsel in Distress, I think that she made the point that there's nothing new under the sun 
when it comes to finance, all of these things repeat over and over again. And just people have short-term memories and they forget that all of this has already happened. Yes, I agree with her. I haven't read her book, but I will go read it. And uh, yes, I completely agree with that. There's nothing new under the sun. And just when we start to say that, oh, this this is done, short sellers are dead, the world changes. And all of a sudden we're we're back in a time that we were that we were in before. But you know, all of these since the beginning of time, since the tulip mania, all of these frauds have this one or business gone wrong stories have this one this one thing in common, which is the complicity of the victims, the belief of the great majority of people and the thing that after the fact is gonna to seem too clearly too good to be true. And if we didn't all believe, the thing wouldn't happen, right? <laughs> we all always, it's human nature to wanna to get rich, to believe in that thing that's gonna be, that's gonna clearly in retrospect be too good to be true. So whether it's Enron, whether it's the financial crisis where we all for a period of time believe that mortgages made to people who couldn't pay them back could be turned into super safe securities, whether it's Elizabeth Holmes, that a, that a young woman with no, with no formal training could invent a machine that had bedeviled scientists for decades, we, we, you look back and you say, oh, of course that didn't make sense, but we all wanted to believe. And I think by the way, that's not necessarily bad. I think in some ways that that human capacity to believe in what seems to be nearly impossible is also what makes the world move forward. So it's, it's both a very bad delusional trait in people and also a very good trait. It can be both at the same time. I would like to circle back to something that you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation on how much the media had evolved over time and the capacity for people to publish on uh, Seeking Alpha or a Substack or creating content out of the blue. How much does narrative and storytelling has taken over the world to the point that it makes much more difficult to see through what's fake news or reality, given that you are being bombarded by all sorts of content that gets no filter and you just don't know narrative. Tesla fans saying that that's not a car manufacturing, that's a software company or examples like that. I think narrative has always ruled the world. There's a reason that human beings have told stories since the dawn of time. That's because that's how we make sense of, of our world. And storytelling inevitably involves some slippage. It's not a story if it adheres to the actual facts, facts, fact after fact after fact. It has to be woven into a story that makes sense to humans and stories are archetypal. And so I think that thus it ever was. I think what is different today is the lack of fact-checking <laughs> spoken as a former fact-checker. But you know, if you read something in traditional media, it you had to have called the, the person who was being criticized because that's the way it worked. You couldn't publish otherwise. It was considered unethical. If you didn't, if the facts weren't accurate, then there was going to be a retraction somewhere. It may not be what the person who was who was criticized would like, but it was going to be clear that it was that it was wrong. And that's and that's gone today. So I've often thought that if I had all the money in the world and the time, I would set up a, um, I would set up a not for profit that taught fact checking and it would come up with um, a curriculum that then could be given to schools. And so that kids in high school, even middle school would be learning to fact check because when I got to fortune, this was the way it worked. You were handed a story and it was 
printed on in those days on black and black and white ink. And often when we're given something in that kind of format, the idea that it could be wrong, that it could be made up was just inconceivable because it's beautifully written and it's and it's and it's it's a story. And being able to see through being able to say, I remember being given my first story to fact check and it was something on 401ks. And I read it and was like, well, well of course. And then I had to fact check it. And when you actually break down something into its discrete facts, and then you also, in those days of fact checking, you were responsible for the overall gist. Was the overall gist accurate? Did the facts support the overall argument? And you would often find, much to your shock, that not only were lots of facts wrong, but the entire thing was wrong. And that was, it was really good training. It's really good training. And I think the world would be a better place if we all learned to do that. I would like myself that fact checklist that you are planning to send to middle school uh, schools in the U.S. because that that feels like something very very powerful. Someday, uh, I, I I have a a great well, it's going to sound a great question for me. I don't know if it's going to be a great question for you, but some people believe that you should not you should try not to meet management that often because every time that you meet someone you are creating a bias especially people that have made it to the top and become the ceos of a company or, or the chairman of a company they are good at selling a narrative and storytelling but in your job you need to meet them and you need to be able to fight against the bias of buying their story I'm not sure I agree with that. Well, you can't do it as a journalist, right? Because you have to give the person a chance to respond. And I think there's something very powerful in that, in that if your convictions aren't strong enough to withstand the other person's narrative, then maybe you haven't sufficiently tested your convictions. I do think there is something to be said for trying to develop an independent point of view before you talk to management. So uh, I've often thought that if I had if I'd been a beat reporter or if I had met Enron's management team first and had gotten their whole you know, slew, slate, slate of perfectly put together presentations, would I have believed? And then probably, right? Because I, I mean, the amount of money that corporations tell people, pay people to put together an incredibly powerful narrative, one that is so well put together that the gaps between the gaps in the narrative don't reveal themselves very, very easily. Uh, it's very hard to see through that. And then there are all these other human nature components of wanting to be liked. And especially if you're most people in the presence of a powerful, intellectually charismatic corporate management team, you're going to want them to like you. And then that's, that's, that's going to override some of your natural skepticism. So I do think it's really important to have your own point of view before to have done your own work and have your own point of view before you go into something. But I think that being able to test that point of view against the power of someone else's storytelling is important because if you can't withstand that, then maybe you haven't earned the right to your point of view. Have you had a chance of reading Dan McCrum's Money Man, the story of Wirecard's fraud? I haven't read, the, I, 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 have, I have read pieces of the book and paid attention to that, that story. I have not read, read the book in its entirety, but yes, once again, Wirecard. I mean, how could there be a better, more powerful example of this and a more powerful example of your previous point that there's nothing new under the sun? I mean, this is all that in spades, right? Somebody warning for a long, long, long time that Wirecard was, was a fraud and no one wanted to pay attention until they, they, they did. I guess that's another interesting lesson that I've, that I've thought about is, is things change in an instant and you can't predict the instant in which that thing is going to change. So 
the skepticism about Wirecard was out there for years before all of a sudden everybody said, oh my God, this is right. And so you have to be careful of dismissing skepticism and saying, oh, well, this is an old story. It's been out there for three years and it doesn't look like it's right because nothing has happened in these last three years. It doesn't really mean anything. It just means the time for that hasn't come yet. Dan McCrom was on a podcast recently. He said that there might be a lot of fraud going on, given what has happened in markets for the last five years with the sorts of cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, VC explosion, private markets. Um, do you would you share that that belief? But I, that has to be true. I mean, I've been lost, lost, <laughs> immersed is a better word than lost in this book I'm trying to write for the last couple of years. So I have, but I, in some ways, I'm sad because I think this these last couple of years would have would be have been a time for uncovering all sorts of stuff. I mean. All you have to do is look at the story told by the Wall Street journalists in their WeWork book about the ways in which the investment bankers fighting to take WeWork public prostrated themselves to Adam Newman in order to get his business and say something is really wrong here. If that's happening in the case of WeWork, then it's happening on a smaller scale with all sorts of companies everywhere and all the mechanisms that we think um, are policing this. The investment bankers who take a company public would never want their names on the prospectus of a company that's going to blow up. Oh, no, no, no. They don't care. They just want the fees. That's super interesting. But anyway, coming to an end of our session, and we always ask our guests two signature questions. Number one, a book recommendation, one or more, and you can recommend any of your books. And an example of a bad outcome that was due to bad process and not bad luck? So right now I have trouble, I, 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 speaking of bias, I have recency bias. And so books that I'm reading now always feel really, really, really appealing to me. So I'm gonna give you a recommendation of a book I'm reading now, which is Peter Zihan's book, The End of Globalization, which is a really thought provoking look at how the, the things we've, the, the forces we've taken for granted over the last, three decades, four decades may actually not be permanent and may it may instead be transitory. And I think it's thought provoking and important. And I would also recommend, and it's a book that I wrote a blurb for, The Lords of Easy Money, which is a book of a, a skeptical look at the Fed and about the role that the Fed may have played in creating a bubble in various asset classes with its monetary policy over the last couple of decades. And there is this really interesting split here because I think most people in the markets would agree Agree that Fed policy has played a role in inflating the price of assets. Most academic economists do not. And so there's this interesting split and you can come down on whatever side of it you want, but the book is a, the book is a really interesting and well-told argument. And I think, um, I think, I think an important contribution. And an example of a bad outcome that was due to bad process and not bad luck. Let's see. And in, in, in my own in my own case, I think where things go wrong is when I don't do my homework and when I rely too much on intuition rather than actually talking to everybody who is available and really trying to be honest about the facts that I'm coming up with. And I think it is it bad luck or is it bad process? It's, that's an interesting line to try, interesting to try to draw the line between, between those two things. But for me, I try to stick with a very clear 
process of doing my own homework, doing my own reporting, and then coming to a conclusion. And I guess, although it isn't mine, when I, when I look back at the Valiant story, I think for a lot of people who ended up on the wrong side of that, some part of that was was bad process in that people looked at the other people who were involved in Valiant and said, oh my goodness, Sequoia, Value Act, Bill Ackman, look at all these incredibly intelligent people who believe in this company. Well, it, they, they must be right. And so I think one, one part of bad process that I always try to be aware of is believing in something just because somebody who's really smart and who you also respect believes in it. And it, it, it's often that's the right call, but you know what? Really smart people who believe in something can, can get it wrong. Bethany McLean, this was fantastic. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for having me.